Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Elixir Mix podcast. This week on our panel, we have Alan Wyma. Hello. We also have Adi Iyengar. Hello. And Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we're going to be talking about hiring, getting hired, and the job market. And, and you guys were talking when I jumped on before the show about some company laying people off or something like that yeah apparently block what i think i seen was BlockFi merged with another company some kind of investment company i don't really know the details but apparently i saw this acronym rif which i've never heard of before i guess it means redundant in force or something basically means okay. that people were named redundant and then were let go about 30 percent so adi is wow. our as i also said before we started talking is adi is our our walking talking human job board and he's way, way more plugged <laughs> into this than that we are, so he's got all the lowdown details. So maybe Adi can talk more about this. Yeah. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, I mean, as far as BlockFi, yeah, I think the uh, the company they merged with was Newberger Berman, right? If I'm, I'm not mistaken, but yeah, it looks like they they laid off twenty percent of their engineering team. So we're gonna have a lot of people looking wow. for, uh, yeah, <laughs> we're gonna have a lot of Elixir engineers looking for jobs. A lot of very good Elixir engineers looking for jobs, and yeah, that's I guess one of the motivation to do this. Uh, hiring podcast we just decided this at the very last moment that we're going to do a hiring podcast and this was like the primary reason for that yep so yeah i'm kind of curious what what the market looks like at this point i mean you know if you're a walking talking job board yeah i mean <laughs> it, does the does the demand line up or is it going to take a little bit of time for these people to find work yeah so from my experience demand is really huge i am one of the people creating demand i need elixir engineers in my team right now and yeah, there there is huge demand for Elixir people. Uh, I think there also might be a huge demand for people who have Elixir experience. There's obviously mm-hmm. a differentiation between people who are interested in Elixir and are ex- a little experienced versus are actually experienced in Elixir. But say if you're actually experienced in Elixir, there's a ton of places, great places that are hiring, including Two Front, which I'm the founding engineer at. So a little self promotion here. If you are looking for <laughs> Elixir, <laughs> if you're looking to work at a place, you know that's test driven one of the best code pieces you'll, you'll ever get a chance to work with. Reach out to me. I've put in a lot of effort to make sure our code is maintainable, fun to work in. We are completely on Elixir pedal stack. Yeah, we're definitely hiring a few engineers right now. And as this podcast goes, I'll slowly talk about a, a few more companies that are hiring. All right. So what is pedal stack? All right. Yeah. Uh, so pedal stack is a Phoenix, Elixir, Tailwind, Alpine, and LiveView, right? So it's like keeping, uh, okay. right? With Alpine JS, we can do uh, some of the stuff that LiveView can't and JavaScript can, right? And Al- mm-hmm. by doing Alpine, you're like taking away the, the need to do any JavaScript and like really staying in the LiveView boundary. Uh, and it, it's just it's just so productive and it's so good to not have to deal with JSBS <laughs> as a backend engineer. So. <laughs> nice. Yeah, well, I, I everybody else is doing React. I don't know what your problem is. 
I mean, it's also like a back-end engineer perspective, right? Like, I, I, eventually, I do I, imagine, I totally you know... I understand. Right, yeah. And like a lot... BlockFi is one of the places, actually. They... I don't know if Pedal it was the, is what they were on, but they were very live view dependent for their web application. Mm-hmm. I think they slowly migrated a few components to React uh, because they needed like a professional front end team for that. But until then, you know, like a unicorn can also stay on, you know, live view and do really good, right? So just yep. following that pattern. Yeah, I've talked to a couple of places. Uh, by the way, I'm looking for a job. And I was looking for Elixir. I seem to keep having people throw Ruby and Rails jobs at me too, which I'm not opposed to. I just, I thought uh, it'd be kind of a good time to make a transition and Elixir is very, very interesting. But yeah, you know, I don't have this deep experience with it yet. And so anyway, uh, there have been a few companies where, yeah, they're they're kind of, well, it's, it just all runs on live view. I had somebody say something to the effect of, yeah, our admin runs on live view, but we're not we're not sure if it's ready for prime time and production. I'm sitting there going, I think it's pretty well proven itself out at this point. So but but it's interesting to see what the perspectives are as well. Yeah, so. I've, I've been super happy with the uh, pedal stack. I think chucking as much JavaScript as I can out the window has been much <laughs> better experience for me. But yeah, I still have to reach for it sometimes, but that's what the hooks are for. But it's it's fantastic that you can just add this like markup. And it just like works and you don't have to worry about like live view and, and fighting with JavaScript to make stuff works. It's just really fantastic. I, I couldn't be happier. Yep. It's definitely interesting. And it's interesting to see where the market's kind of headed with some of this stuff. But yeah, so I'm curious, Adi, since you seem to know everybody who's hiring, how do you know that everybody's hiring? Yeah, so I recently went through a job process, uh, job interview process myself uh, a couple of months ago. And I was, again, anyone who's looking... I was surprised just how big the demand is for senior, senior, mid to senior Elixir engineers. I told my company that, hey, uh, I'm going to be starting to look for a job. It might take me a month or so. You know, I, I, I thought I'd give them like a month, month and a half notice, ideally two months notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got my first offer within a week. <laughs> it, it is very, it's not something that I did something extraordinary. The interviews were very straightforward, simple. And it was, mm-hmm. do you know Elixir? Can you code this? simple stuff can you do basic system design and if you can do that you sh- you can land elixir job very easily and i know i have elixir experience five years of it so i know that might have something to do with it but once you get the interview i don't think you need the elixir experience to do well in the interviews right so yeah i mean i as a result of that i kind of and I'm in good terms with a lot of those companies. So, yeah, I mean, if anyone listening is like kind of curious about those companies or uh, curious about, you know, just uh, how to approach their job application process, just reach out to me. I'm happy to help. And maybe you might be a fit at my my company itself. Well, I can nice. talk about uh, from the employer side because I've done some some hiring, right? So, like, what I usually do is I usually look to see, can you tell me what a gen server is? Can you tell me some things about OTP? And then if they cannot, then I can, if I'm, open to hiring more junior people, then I start rolling it back. Can you tell me about functions, enable data, transformations, this kind of more general kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, I'm surprised by actually how many people kind of come to me and like, they're like, yeah, I got code and I can do it. And I'm like, okay, let's see your code. And I would just point to something and say, what, what does that line do? The amount of people that come to me and say, actually, I don't know, I just copied and pasted it from from Google. I just oh, get wow. blown, blown, blown away from, or Stack Overflow or whatever wow. source. The fact that they tell me that, I mean, I'm happy that they're honest. But yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to get a job, like every single line, as an employer, as somebody who's in the interviewing, I'm expecting you to know. And like, you don't have to know it's super in-depth, but at least have an idea. Uh, let, to give you an idea, like there's another, like I ask these people like, okay, what does this line do? It was basically a bcrypt line hashing a password. 
and they had no idea what it is. And so at, at that point, I kind of just gave up on the guy because that's, there's some things I can I can let go, right? If you just say that this right. this encrypts a password or whatever, even that's that's wrong. But you can understand that that I'm I'm okay with that. You don't have to tell me how bcrypt works, but you have to know what that line does, right? What is this line doing? That's really what I'm after. Yep, definitely. It's been kind of interesting on the other end of it, too, right? So some of the interviews have been Elixir and some of them have been Rails. And obviously on the Rails ones, I I know all the answers. <laughs> on the Elixir ones, though, it's been interesting to just see how much these conversations and being a part of the podcast has helped me be able to converse about some of this stuff. So I understand a lot of the concepts, but I haven't kind of plugged it all in together. And I let them know that up front, right? And so far, it really hasn't been a major issue for anybody, right? It's like, oh, well, let's just talk through this anyway. And, and people are pretty open to it. So I think there's a lot to be said for experience, I guess, right? Just having 15 years of Rails experience counts for something. And then being able to just communicate well with people. I, I seem to be getting by okay on that, on the Elixir stuff, as I find time to go and work on my side projects and figure out how some of this other stuff comes together. But yeah, I, I don't want to discourage anybody think by making them think that they have to be some kind of expert, right? Because you don't. But you do have to convince them then that you're worth training. And and that's, for me, at least where the experience in Rails has come in, right? Because it's like, oh, well, we can help you bridge that gap, right? And you'll you'll start contributing pretty quickly. And that's really what I found people are looking for if they if they can't, if you can't actually demonstrate like a deep knowledge of, of the language or framework. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I think I think the just the web development experience and understanding that is like that helps so much, even if someone doesn't have experience. And that's kind of what I noticed a lot of uh, smaller startups have already adopted Elixir also looking for, including including me, like just someone who is passionate about Elixir, even though they're not mm-hmm. knowledgeable about it. Uh, and just to demonstrate that they can bridge the gap, that that itself is enough. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing that I've run into a bit is like how many startups there are out there that are looking for folks. I mean, you've got some of the more established companies out there and I've talked to some of them, right? Just the people I know work at or, you know, whatever. And, but they're looking for somebody who will come in, be part of the team, contribute to something that's already mostly put together, right? And so they're looking for somebody who can come in and just add on to what's going on. And then you've got the other companies that are newer that are actually still kind of architecting their solutions and things like that. And there's a surprising number of them who are adopting Elixir. I I was kind of blown away with how many of them are going, well, we just had our first launch or we're just building up to this or we got started with Elixir, we have a proof of concept and now we're, you know, moving forward with this stuff, right? And just seeing how many of them want somebody at at one level or another and what they're willing to invest in people. It's just been really fascinating for me to have those conversations and be like, okay, here's where things are at and have them be totally willing to pull the trigger and go, okay, well, yeah, you can clearly, clearly you can do this. So let's do it. But yeah, just the level of problems you're solving too varies quite a bit. Yeah, I think there's this website called the Elixir Company. I don't know if it's .com or .something else, but they, they have a list of, well, they try to maintain a list of all the companies that use Elixir in production. And mm-hmm. uh, last I checked, which was a while ago, <laughs> they were like around 400 and a lot of them were startups. So I imagine yeah. they'd be like close to 800 right now. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yep, 626. So definitely growing. Oh, nice. <laughs> If they're startups, I'm wondering how many of these companies are still around. But it could be, uh, there's quite a few in, in France. Uh, mostly, I see a lot in this course, US and in Europe. 
definitely not in Paris for some reason. Not not too sure why Paris though. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. So I'm you know, I'm a little yeah. curious too. Then yeah, I mean, if you're one of these BlockFi folks, you know, what what would you do if you were one of them, right? Where you got laid off all of a sudden? Yeah, I mean, I guess the question is like that. You can you can interpret the question as like where do like see all the jobs that are available, right? For Elixir. So so basically if you're look, looking at startups, I, I found my on AngelList. It's a very good place uh to go in as especially if you're senior, there's more demand for senior in startups, right? Elixir radar publishes uh the jobs uh i mean at least some of them like every now and then uh right so that's a, that's also a good place yeah unfortunate oh, oh doesn't elixir also have a elixir slack for like jobs i'm uh you nodding yet do, do you know more about it i just have heard of it <laughs> there's a jobs channel and they they really by they mean like the admins and stuff they really like watch that and try to make sure people post in a specific format Specifically, including remote or not, and like what kind of stipulations there are, where it is, etc. And there's always like some random stuff, but people usually catch it quite quickly and remove it. So I, I'd say the filtering on there is pretty good. Gotcha. Nice. Another thing, I know a couple of my friends are considering that is like there are because a lot of startups are you know hiring or are using Elixir. Uh, there's an increased demand for contracting in Elixir. So there's like a lot of these like contracting firms. Uh, I know one of the new ones is like Buyers Dev. They hire across the world for Elixir and Ruby and um, stuff like that. They have a, a lot of Elixir engineers. So it might be worthwhile reaching out to them. Like if you want to do like a temporary contract, like gain more experience in Elixir as a mid-level engineer, that would be a good way to do that. Yeah, I have to say that the two things that have been working for me have been just talking to people I know. And so, Adi, you've referred me to a couple of places. I've got a couple of other friends that are pretty plugged into the Elixir community that are helping me meet people that may be hiring. And that's been really helpful as well. So some of it I definitely see, yeah, go look at the job boards, go look at some of these listings, go talk to some of the companies that, you know, use Elixir. But in a lot of cases, it's worked out just to talk to people I know who are doing Elixir and see where they're at. Yeah. So I'm curious, Chuck, what, what are uh, Alan mentioned about the gen server stuff, right? Like I have not been asked a question about much about OTP in my interview process, and I have been through quite a few in last year. Mm-hmm. What type of questions uh, were you asked for your Elixir interviews? Uh, was it just like, did you get through like a technical interview yet? I know you're still like new in your process. Uh, so it might, you might not have had a technical interview yet. Most of the technical interviews I've done have been a, around Rails, not Elixir Phoenix. That said, I mean, yeah, generally, I just get asked kind of broad questions about, yeah, you know, what is a gen server or, hey, what functional programming or things like that. And I don't know if I'm not getting super hard, deep questions because I let them know up front that I've been doing Rails for the last 15 years and that I don't really have professional Mm. Elixir experience yet or whether it's just kind of, I don't know that they that they're comfortable with my experience and are willing to give me a shot anyway. Gotcha, Alan. Do you have any questions that some of our viewers can like prepare for? Yeah, I mean, it depends on where the guy's coming from, right? Because the Elixir talent is so small that I try to. I mean, I could just talk more about my usual style of kind of interviewing people because I I've done many different languages. So I usually let them, as I call it, pick their poison. Uh, say, okay, choose a choose a language, and then like we'll talk about it. And so I'll just ask specific questions, right? So I've had people come to me and say, okay, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of C plus Okay, great. Tell me what's the difference between stack and heap. I mean, I think that's pretty important to really understand. Tell me, and then if 
even if they don't know the algorithm, tell me what a pointer is. You know, what does Alec or Malik do? How do you free memory? This kind of stuff. And if you don't do that, what's a double free? What What's the behavior of that? I start asking kind of questions like this. And I try to, depending like how they reply, I try to make it easier. And just to kind of see like, okay, maybe they didn't learn that much. Maybe they learned at least something to try to get an idea about what's going on. And I always try to finish it off with, okay, I always say bring, I tell them to bring the code that they are the most proud of. Because if you're the most proud of this piece of code, you probably know it the best out of all things you've written. And I say, okay, show me what this thing does. And then just talk about it, right? They always try to, to show me the finished software, which I'm just not interested in because it doesn't show me anything. <laughs> it really doesn't show me anything, right? Um, right. You know, you show me a happy case, right? It's not really important. I'm not really, even if the code is buggy, it doesn't really matter. I want to see what's your process. I want to see what you write, your style, like is your, how your variable names, all this kind of stuff. And just like like I told you before, like with the decrypting, what does this line do? I just randomly choose a line that I think is somewhat complicated and say, what does this thing do? Tell me what it is. And then I always ask them, okay, start from the top of the file, walk down, tell me what, tell me the story, right? What is this thing doing? That's my usual way of kind of interviewing people. Yeah. I really like that. I've actually never not had an interview where I had to kind of bring a piece of code that I did outside of the process and like kind of describe it. I would have, I think I would have done better <laughs> if that would have happened. So uh, yeah, I really like the style of interviewing. Well, I mean, yeah. the other thing I could do is, is give them a test. But to be honest, like I don't really like to be tested. Mm. I, I think tests are useful, but at the same time, like you can't be too short and you also can't be really long because they're really long and complicated. Nobody wants to do it. Right. Yeah. One so, of the interviews that I did, they actually just gave me like, kind of toy problems and watched me work through them. So I literally had pen and paper write Python and write uh, ES6, uh, I don't know, what, five years ago or something? I can't remember now. Oh, oh man. It, it was weird. I was like, like, literally, they put out this piece of paper and write all the code on there. It was, it was wow. Brutal. Yeah, I've, I've seen the whiteboard interviews, which is kind of the same approach. And I just, nobody codes like that. <laughs> I mean, I mean pseudocode is still okay, but like writing like ES6 and Python on, oh man, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, the, the other thing is, though, is that they, the whiteboard interviews that I've seen, they really do actually ding you for like uh, syntax and for not knowing the mm-hmm. exact function call or method call to get something done. And they're going, it would take me two seconds to look this up, right? And so you're you're basically grading me on what I've memorized. Well, I'm sorry, but I feel like it's more efficient for me to be able to look it up. And if I use it all the time, then yeah, eventually it'll it'll kind of yeah. become natural for me to just pull it out. But if I haven't done it a dozen or so times, I'm probably not going to remember exactly what, you know, what the call signature is. And there's nothing wrong with that. So the other thing is, is like VS Code has so many plugins and stuff that will feed you any of the standard library stuff. It's like, hey... So you start typing it in and the autocomplete, it's like, okay, are you calling this method where, or, you know, in Elixir, are you calling this function with, with two parameters or three parameters and you pick the one you want and then you can actually, it'll tell you what the parameters are, right? So I don't have to go look it up. It just works for me. And I, I think a lot of that approach is counterproductive and is really just an intimidation tactic that they don't need. Yeah, you, you can actually make a better case for not remembering syntax because that probably shows that you are like an efficient engineer who's like ha- who has yeah. processes to like like you said like replicate like oh if you type schema boom it should like add like you know yeah. fields and all that like whatever you know like mm-hmm. you have all those macros that you find ways of being a productive so 
uh, I mean, I mean, I'm not yeah. saying that necessarily true, but at least you can make a, a case against it. That's crazy. <laughs> right. And I think you can also pretty quickly, okay, here's this toy problem, you know, write the code and then, all right, now we want to see a test for it. Right. So you can turn around to test in a minute or two. You get a pretty good idea of how people work. Yeah. That's also one of my big pet peeves when I'm doing an interview and the interviewer uh, is like, oh, here's a problem. I'm like, okay, uh, what, are, what, what do you expect when that happens? And they're like, oh, just start writing. I'm like, no, I'm, I want to write tests first because that's how I code, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like, and they're like, oh, no, just write the thing. I'm like, that's just not how my brain works. I don't have anything, you know, my brain works. Right. I set expectations and I meet them, right? And the rigidity of the interview is like really gets to me. I ha- I mean, I I did the interviews without tests, but like some of them, but most, time, most times I really tell them, I'm going to write tests. I don't care <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what you think. Like, And they somehow feel like, you know, if you write tests, it might take over more time. But nine times out of 10, an interviewer has come back and told me, wow, it didn't even take that much time. And you wrote tests as well. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, because I wrote tests, that's why it did not take me that long, right? But yeah, the rigidity of interviewers, like to follow a specific process, like whiteboard or not right not writing tests like doing things their specific way that that's a big hurdle and i think i think it, it, it prevents them from properly as, uh, assessing uh, what uh, a, an engineer can do well the other thing is is that i've gotten a lot more picky about hey what's your process do you have tests do you have ci do you you know and so i start asking these questions back to them and it's really interesting to see how many of them go well that's something that we want to work on and i'm like <laughs> you know how much trouble is it going to save you to have something run your test for you and say, hey, you broke it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or or make it part of your process, you know, whether you write the test before or after. You have something at the end that says, hey, this does what I expect it to, right? And then the next time when I go change code that it relies on, it says, hey, it doesn't work like I expect it to anymore. I mean, that's, that's the time savings, right? It's not the upfront. It may take you longer to write the dang test. But at the end of the day, the next time I go and touch common code, I know I busted it and I've got to go make sure that everything still matches up with the assumptions that were made when the code was written. So totally, I'll get off, I'll get off my uh, high horse, but... Yeah, that that stuff drives me a little bit crazy. And I do actually now push and ask, you know, what's your process? What do you have in place? Do you do these things, which is usually testing, CI, CD. I ask them what their deployment process is. I I hate it when they come back and they say, oh, you don't have to worry about that. DevOps does it. (laughs) That's the worst answer. (laughs) I am going to hurt DevOps, I promise you, right? If I know what the deployment's doing, then I can work with what they're doing. Anyway, so I I think it's worth asking those questions. Honestly, I think it's actually raised my value in their estimation Mm. more than it's hurt me in in these interviews. But I've told a couple of the companies that I've interviewed with, I'm like, look, I said, I I promise you one of the first things I do when I come in is we're going to set up a CI system and start having conversations about when it can auto deploy. Because at the end of the day, you know, that's a process that has to be consistent and reliable. And there's no reason why you can't just have it, you know, when we push the master or whatever the production line is, there's no reason why it shouldn't go live. Because at that point, what we're saying is, is this does what we expect it to. It's going to work as as we we understand that it should. We've had somebody put eyes on it and make sure that it does what. And so at the end of the day, because, yeah, I'm I am a fan of a certain level of manual testing, not all the time and not everything every time you deploy but it you know mostly uh 
hey, we're the business people. We asked the technical people for this thing. We're going to go have a look and we're going to come back and say, you know, this wasn't exactly what we thought we wanted, right? So then at the end of the day, when it goes out, it's what they wanted. We have tests that tell us that it works. If, if crap comes apart, then we have a system for dealing with that. I mean, otherwise, just headaches. So speaking of deployments, I mean, I remember when it's really weird, like when I was in the bank, we we could deploy our own things, like, we'd have to write down the steps of how to deploy, we had did all the stuff and everything, we basically did everything and documented, and then we'd have to raise a ticket for some guy in India to literally copy and paste the steps and deploy the code for us. Although we, we had access to the, we had access to the machines, but that was just part of their process was we had to write like an RFC or something, prove a business case, and deploy the code but yeah again we, we couldn't deploy it directly but we had to have some guy in india deploy it for us it, it was the weirdest thing ever i still don't quite get it but yeah and also we had to like also give them steps how to check if the deployment was well wow hey folks it's charles maxwood and i just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that i'm doing it's free it's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career so if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say, Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. Yeah, that, that sounds terrible. I think yeah, just to like kind of, yeah, I think just to add like one point, I guess, uh, not, I guess to kind of counter what Chuck said, I worked at a place that was completely automated in deployments and I worked at a place that where most of it was automated, but the last trigger is something the engineers who are de delivering would have to press. I like the latter a little better because I think the process the process itself required it and they put thought into the process, right? So it, they didn't have CD, right? That's what I'm saying. And it kind of increased the engineer's accountability a little bit more when you are saying, okay, it is ready versus someone who is reviewing your PR. And yeah, you can say that when you merge it, you can say it's ready. But again, it depends on your process. If you have a way to QA the site in like production environment with pro production-like data without merging to main or master, then maybe you can do the CD route really well, which I think they had at BlockFi. But at community, which again, I preferred engineering process over there, they, didn't they 
you needed like what you know to explicitly deploy the, the image would be created itself and everything else would be automated but the last part of deploying would be on the engineer who's delivering it and it increased i think it increased accountability and like you know uh, how invested an engineer is in the feature like you're like oh i deployed mm-hmm. it how did it go right uh, there, there is a psychological element to that i guess yeah i mean we could probably talk about this all day but the point is is that yeah i mean going into these i tend to ask for questions about how it all works and it's just because if deployment is ad hoc or completely out of the hands of the developers I've worked at places where that just created issues. And so that's that's ultimately what I'm talking about at the end of the day with that stuff. I'm trying to think through. So one other thing that I'm just going to put out there is that I didn't plan this, but one of one thing that I did is I applied at a company here in Salt Lake. And it turns out that they have kind of a dual role with the recruiters. The recruiters recruit for internal roles, but they also recruit for other companies. And so... I went through their whole technical process and then they actually referred me to two other companies because they didn't have a job for me. And so I'm, I'm curious what your experience has been with recruiters, uh, both the internal kind and the, hey, I'm going to go find you a spot kind. Yeah, it depends. I mean, the recruiter, it's uh, it depends on the recruiter, right? Huh. There's some that are really good, but those are far and few. And the ones that, yeah, I mean, you got to find one that really cares, right? Because most recruiters, they're, they're just kind of, yeah, they're reading off a sheet of paper, right? Like, what is this guy, what do you want? 50 years of Java? Okay, I'll see if I can find that. Okay, you don't got that, you don't got that. Just just checking off the boxes, right? Um, yeah. But I mean, that's just a problem of all companies, because what always happens is like CTO, he knows, maybe you know, maybe the CTO is like, listen, I, I want a good engineer. I don't care if he's got experience in the tech, but I want a good one. And then he tells his, you know, secretary or whatever to, to do that. And then they say, well, what tech are we using? Okay, we're using Java. Well, we need at least 10 years experience on Java. It's, it's you know, it's, sometimes it gets lost in translation about what you really want to have. And so you, you got to tick the boxes. That's usually what happens. Yeah. So that's, that's really the worst. And then of course, people I have 10 years of ex- Elixir experience. And you can. I think it's older than that now, right? Not quite. No, it's not. <laughs> Is it? I thought it's getting up there pretty soon. It's getting see. up there. 2000, 2011, it's, right? 2012 was the release candidate, right? All right, all right fine. It's, it's close. <laughs> it's, it's eight like or nine, nine years. It's close. It's but, close. Yeah. <laughs> I, just yeah. I can't remember what company it was, but they, they reached out to DHH because he was the only person they could find at the time that had 10 years experience in Rails. <laughs> and it was because he was the only person in the world that had 10 years experience in Rails. Because he had built it, and yeah, oh, they, they got they caught all kinds of crap. A couple people called him out at Rails. It was really funny, but yeah, wasn't that the Library of Congress or something? I think they had a job in a job post up for ten years of Rails experience. I saw. I don't remember. I mean, Rails is older than ten years now, but it's just it, it was just funny. But yeah, a lot of times you're you're walking into a situation where HR wrote the job posting and they really don't know what they're asking for. Yeah, I guess like tying that back to recruiters, I've had that experience where a recruiter has said, mm-hmm. oh, well, they're already looking for like, you know, nine to 10 years of experience, but you have only five years of Elixir experience. And I'm like, Elixir has been around for like seven years. <laughs> and they're like, right. oh, has it? Oh, I, sh- I, sh- I should correct that. Another funny recruiter experience that I had was the first company I worked at, and Kasam. They were they hired an external recruiter, and a couple of months ago, the recruiter reached out to me like, "Hey, you mm-hmm. wanna use Elixir to make a, the world a better place? Have you heard of us?" I'm like, "Have you even looked at my LinkedIn profile?" <laughs> <laughs> I've done that. I think my favorite experience was with that was uh, the first company I worked for as a full time developer. I got contacted by one of their internal recruiters. 
And yeah, the same deal, right? It's like, it's like, I think you'd be a great fit. And I'm like, did, did you did you go look at my LinkedIn profile? Oh, you've worked for us before, right? And then I got contacted by him again a year later, and they had a new wow. recruiter, guy I went to high school with. And it was just like, it was like, seriously, he's like, well, I should have oh, looked. <laughs> and I'm, but I could give him a real bad time because we knew each other. But anyway, yeah, it's just, it's crazy that, I mean, the, the people that are out there and they're just fishing for as many folks as possible, it really just doesn't doesn't go well. And you know also that they're going to refer you to as many companies as possible, regardless of whether they're a good fit. Right. I mean, there are, like Alan said, a few... Yeah, there are good ones. Few, yeah, a few really good ones. And I can actually, you know, at the end of this podcast, I can leave a link to a couple of them. And I think they'd appreciate the shout out too. But yeah, I had a very good experience working with them, even though I did not take the go forward with the job that I got to mm-hmm. them. But they really asked very specific questions and they spent... They, you know, all they have to do is spend 15 or 20 minutes on a candidate extra, right? To mm-hmm. get them better match. Like, that's not that much effort, but it, it just right. shows that you care, right? So uh, that care also comes to their accountability, right? They, the A lot of these places have like a 90-day replacement guarantee, right? And that but they have to make sure it's a good match so the candidate doesn't yeah. leave. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave links to a couple of recruiters in the show notes. Uh, they're really good and they have a ton of elixir positions right now. <laughs> nice. Sounds good. One other thing just with the job market is since the job market's kind of warming up or has warmed up, I guess, and has been warm for a while, salaries. I'm, I'm curious what your ex- experience there is with like benefits and pay and stuff like that, because it wasn't what I, ex- I don't know what I expected, to be honest, when I started doing the interviews. But yeah, it was definitely different from what I thought. So I'm curious what your experience was, and then maybe I'll talk about what I expected or didn't expect and, and how it was different. Yeah, the salary range for me was big, right? Like mm-hmm. the lower end was uh, what I was expecting, but the higher end was quite more than what I thought it would be. And I just interviewed like a little over a year ago too. And I, the higher end was nowhere near that. Like the higher end had increased by 70%. Uh, oh, wow. And I, yeah, I was uh, very surprised. And I think it's it's definitely like, it's, it's a good market for engineers right now, right? Every, mm-hmm. every company has increased their salaries and stuff. And I think bigger companies are just using Alexa more, right? Like there's like the score, for example, Simple Bet is hiring a lot. Pepsi, Pepsi has been hiring, but they're hiring even more like tech leads and stuff mm-hmm. now. So the salaries you will get will be, you know, in that range. But the startups right. that are, were hiring are still hiring. So the lower end is kind of still the same, but the range has just increased like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I've, seen with some of this. So I started doing interviews. I started getting interviews with companies doing Rails and companies doing Elixir. And that was interesting too, just seeing the contrast there. People don't seem to be willing to pay as much for Rails to Rails work, right? I figured it was probably about the same. So I interviewed for both, but it's it's not. And one thing that I'm finding is that you have at least in Rails, you have a lot of established companies that kind of know what they're willing to pay for the Rails folks. And I think that affects some of it, right? So I got some offers that were quite a bit lower than kind of the basement for Elixir devs, experienced Elixir devs. But that said, I mean, those the it's a wide range too, and it goes up quite a ways. But yeah, I've been talking to some other folks who are doing hiring for Elixir and doing Elixir and stuff like that. And their ranges are all universally higher, right? Their low end is higher than the low end on Rails, even for the nicer companies to work for and their high end is considerably higher than the the rails folks and i i don't know if i can necessarily pin down exactly why uh, 
Uh, maybe it is just the adoption curve for Elixir is a lot steeper at this point than it is for Rails. But uh, overall, you also have to understand that I was in the job market a year ago, and then I was self-employed before that. So I came into the job market not knowing what to expect. And it's been really interesting to be talking to these companies because I interviewed with a whole lot more companies this time than I did last time. And I think part of that's because a lot more of them were hiring. And I think it's also just because they're more desperate to get people because they're so far behind the curve. And so uh, because of that, I've had all kinds of companies coming at me with, hey, will you talk to us? Hey, can we can we convince you to give us a look? We have this work, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, so at the end of the day, I mean, it's it's been really, really fascinating to see how it all works out. And also the other thing is, is again, because a lot of these are startups, a lot of these offers are have, have some kind of stock uh, component to them, right? Where you get a piece of the company. And that's also been really interesting just to see how that comes into play and how some of them, I had one company that I talked to and they were kind of like, well, you can either take more salary or or more stock, right? You can kind of decide how you want your compensation to work. Others, it was pretty direct. It was, hey, we're going to pay you this, which was in line with what I was finding for Elixir anyway, plus the stock, which was really interesting. And then some of them, you know, they do try and soften the salary requirement a little bit by offering you stock. And it really just depends on how badly they need people and and what they think will attract folks. But it's been really fascinating to talk through it. I That said, I don't know what the lower end of like Elixir devs. So if you're just getting into Elixir and you don't have a lot of experience in anything else, I don't, I don't know what that range is because I haven't been talking to those people about those jobs. But I will tell you that I think the lowest number that I've had anybody even when I ask them what their pay range is, I think the lowest number I've seen is like $170,000. And basically, it's we go up from here, right? And and then they ask me what I want. And I always ask for quite a bit more than that. And I'm not really getting pushback either. So it's it's been really fascinating to me just to kind of see, okay, you know, again, depending on where they think you're at and how badly they want you. And I'm not shy about throwing out numbers. I'm not giving away any secrets about what anybody has said to me from any given company, right? And I've talked to quite a number of them, so you kind of get the idea. But yeah, if you're an, if you're a senior Elixir person, you, sh- you should be able to get a, a pretty solid salary and be able to get by. And I live in Utah, right? And I know that in a lot of cases, you know, they off- give me a softer offer than if I lived in like New York City or San Francisco or something because my cost of living is lower. But at the same time, I really haven't experienced too much of that either. And a lot more people seem willing to hire for remote and full-time remote and not not really blink about it. So anyway, that, that's kind of been my experience as far as that all goes. And uh, I've only had one company basically say, well, we're going back to the office three days a week and we want you, or we want you here on those days. And I just told them, well, you, you can compromise on that or I'll take a different job. <laughs> but because I'm looking for full-time remote. So I guess that's another piece of context just to put in there. So again, you know, if you if you live in one of these markets and they want you to drive to the office, I don't know, maybe they'll pay you more. But uh, in my experience, this is kind of where things are uh, coming in at. So yeah, I think that remote thing has also decreased the 
the pay difference between the mm-hmm. I, I think I think some companies still use like a pay scale uh, to pay based on you know the uh, cost of living and stuff, but many companies don't, and uh, it's it's frustrating sometimes living in Boston, living like the third most expensive city in the country, and like if someone right. living in like uh, in the middle of nowhere in Colorado uh, can like afford to buy like a sports car, <laughs> it's it's really frustrating. Right. But it at least like can, yeah that that that's another reality that you know we should be talking about Chuck like yeah. The salaries are very high, and I think I was reading in adopting Elixir. There's like a section for hiring uh, Elixir engineers. They said uh-huh. the pushback that they've had is it's harder and more expensive to hire Elixir engineers. But the the way people kind of justify that is by saying, like, generally, if you look at uh, a, a life cycle of a Rails project and an Elixir project, Elixir project is significantly more productive for two reasons. Elixir oh wow! Is like more tra- wow. It's more tra- Elixir is more transparent. Like you know, it facilitates like you mm-hmm. know more you know faster iterations without taking a lot of tech debt and elixir engineers it's a newer thing people who want right. to do elixir are higher percentile developers in general so the, the likelihood that you if elixir engineer is better than a general rails engineer is much higher because it's still early in the adoption curve so people mm-hmm. who are like curious more you know enthusiasts get into elixir so that's why companies are willing to pay you know 30, 40% higher salary than like a Rails engineer to Elixir people. Like even some of the smaller companies who have like below median salaries are paying above median salary for Elixir engineers. Right. Well, I think I think the other thing just to keep in mind with a lot of this is that I just totally lost my train of thought. I had something that I wanted to share and I can't think of it. Oh, as far as the, the locality stuff, like, you know, paying people in different markets, different amounts. I don't think people have a lot of stomach for that. And so I, I get that it's frustrating for folks that live in higher cost of living areas, right? Because it's like, hey, you know, your dollar goes further than mine. But the flip side of it is, is that my work is just as valuable as yours. And so it's it's kind of this interesting deal, right? And it's not to say that one approach is better than the other, because at the same time, I mean, you see people hire folks overseas, right? And they pay considerably less for their overseas engineers, right? And it's because the cost of living there is so much lower. And sometimes the quality of work isn't quite as high either. But usually the orders of magnitude between the quality of work and the orders of magnitude of the the salary, you're usually paying quite a bit less for a bit more throughput. And so and it's just because they live in a place where they can get by on a 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 thousand dollar a year salary just fine and more than just fine. Whereas here, you can't. But yeah, it, and it's an interesting conversation to have. But yeah, again, I haven't I haven't seen a whole lot of pushback one way or the other, right? And again, I'm not seeing a whole lot of companies insisting that people come into the office. So it's it's really been fascinating to see how that all plays in. We're here. It seems like everybody's kind of going back to the office. Like uh, the banks were probably the first places that mm-hmm. really put everybody at home. And I think the other one started to follow after that. That's I don't have any data on that, but that was like my feeling. But now the banks are starting to basically say, okay, you got to be three days a week in the office. And uh, yeah, they're all coming back over here. I'm sure that everybody's going to be full steam back in the office. There's some people who are actually sticking uh, remote, though. Some places over here, they're, because it's like rent out here is ridiculous. I don't know if you guys yeah. know that, but it's really ridiculous out here. So when they looked at their balance sheet and they were like, yeah, we don't need the office no more. <laughs> you know, yeah. so they actually started renting out some places from we WeWork to try to like, you know, if you want an office feel, okay, you can go to WeWork or you can go to these other places. Mm-hmm. But they really just slashed all the budgets of, of all this rental stuff. And it's been nothing but good for them. You know, profits everywhere. I've seen a bit of that in New York and San Francisco as well. 
uh, some of the other urban centers to some degree. But yeah, especially in New York and San Francisco, where the rents, again, are just sky high. You know, they sent people home and they figured out that there were certain groups of people that they definitely wanted in the office, but then they could get by with a lot less office and it saved them a ton of money. Yeah, there was actually, before this even happened, I, I heard from my manager that there was, of course, previous manager now, but when he was at HSBC, I think he said that, I think, I don't remember what, what it was, but there was some part of the company where it was basically hot desking within the, the office. So you have to basically fight for a desk and there was only so many desks available. So, I mean, they were just trying to find whatever heck they could to, to make, make, uh, save a dime, right? Yep. Yeah. Well, and if it turns out to be a not insignificant part of your budget, to pay for that office space and you figure out that you're getting as good or better productivity without people showing up. It's, it's definitely something to consider. I think there are trade-offs just like everything else, but it's definitely something to look at. Let's not talk about productivity measurement. That's one of the worst things ever, especially when you well, start using Git, Git repos to assume <laughs> who is productive, who's not productive, because the guy who manages configuration changes is the most productive team member, <laughs> according to the stats. Yeah. Well, I think that's, again, another conversation to have. I mean, you know, when you're applying for a job, it's definitely worth talking about how they're going to measure your what what you deliver. But yeah, like how to measure that, that that's a whole different can of worms. So are there any other tricks or things you want to share about the job market or finding a job in Elixir? I guess conferences is a great place to uh, kind of like, you know, start a conversation like, yeah, uh, I have successfully hired multiple engineers through conferences uh, in my team. Kind of hoping to do that in Codebeam coming up as well. <laughs> so uh, yep. yeah, that's a great t- uh, place to network. And if you think that tickets are expensive, uh, all the Codebeam and I think uh, all the Elixir conferences that are run by Erlang Solutions, they offer volunteering opportunities. Uh, mm-hmm. if you, you have to obviously like do some work, but like you can get the, a ticket for free and like also like network through that. Elixir meetups, there's so many of those and all of them are remote right now uh, because of COVID. So just go to meetups.com and like, you know, I know one in Denver is really popular. They're going to do a self-promotion of Boston Elixir meetup too. Uh, We, and then we talk about some jobs or whatever that that are available. So again, network, find ways to do that. And like, that's, there's no better resume than you talking to someone and communicating one-on-one about how passionate you are about Elixir. Mm. That will get them invested in you right away. They'll find a way to hire you if they like you. That's so true. And a lot of times you'll be talking to somebody and if they're hiring, they may even just ask you if you're looking. Yeah. One other trick with the meetups and the conferences that I've found to be fairly effective is if you speak at them, even if you just do a lightning talk or something, that's really, really effective for getting noticed. And if you're if you're kind of on the market, you can actually just toss that in at the end. Hey, I'm looking for opportunities or contract work or whatever. And a lot of times, even if they are looking for somebody to do stuff that has nothing to do with what you spoke about, you you get credibility just from having spoken and they'll they'll come to you and say, hey, let's, you know, let's talk about what you can do for us. Yeah. The only other thing that I would add is, you know, just be upfront with people about where you are. A lot of times people go in and they want to impress the people who are interviewing them. And that's normal. And you should want to impress them. But I found that I get way more mileage when I actually say, hey, here's where I'm at, right? Here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. Yeah, it it tends to work out much better for me, especially in this process where I've basically been telling people that I have very little practical professional Elixir experience. But then, you know, then what it does is it frames the conversation about, okay, what do you know? What 
experience do you have? And then I can go to my deep experience in other technologies. All right. Well, let me throw one last thing out because it just came to mind. And that is uh, do some homework on the companies, right? If you're applying to a company or somebody refers you to a company or something like that, uh, go check them out. Go look at their website. Go look at their LinkedIn. Go look at their because companies have LinkedIn listings as well, right? Go do the work, go see who you know there, see if you can talk to them about what it's like to be there, uh, see if you can kind of get a feel for what they're like. There's a surprising amount of information out there too. And so you can go and, and really get some good info. Not every company is as transparent as I'd like them to be about some of this stuff, which I think is sad because ultimately they should be transparent enough for me to look at them and go, this isn't a good fit. And then I just saved us both a whole bunch of time. But yeah, at the end of the day, you know, know what you care about and then go see how they line up. All right, let's do picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Alan, do you have some picks for us? I just have one pick. Recently, I decided to spoil myself. I just picked up a Galaxy Fold, so it's not easy to open up one-handed, but so it's been a really interesting experience. Uh, Somebody who works a lot with Flutter, you know, I think that foldables really have something coming for them in the future. I don't know what that will be, but just having this for a couple of days where it's like, okay, I have, you know, like a slightly narrow phone that I can use most of the time in portrait mode. I could open it up and uh, I basically have almost the size of a iPad mini in my pocket that I could carry around, right? And that's been the most useful because there's so many times where I want to have a nice big screen, but I just don't have to carry around the iPad mini around. So it's been a, a great experience. So I highly recommend if you're looking for something like that, I think the Fold 3 is pretty decent. Uh, but I think, of course, it's going to be better and better as time comes out. So I think these are really kind of like the future. Cool. How about you, Adi? What are your picks? So I think my picks are going to be jobs again. And I'm going to mention a few that are hiring Elixir. So the first one is, and again, the links to all of these will be in the show notes. Uh, but the first one is the score. They are hiring Elixir engineers across the board. I think mid to all the way to tech lead. Check them out. Simple Bet is another one. Very interesting uh, company. And I think uh, Dave is the name of their head of uh, engineering. He gives talks and Elixir conferences a lot these days. They're doing some really cool stuff uh, with AI and stuff. And I, I think there's a chance that they might be doing stuff with NX. Don't quote me on that, but uh, 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 check them out. That's really cool as well. Pepsi, as usual, is hiring Elixir engineers, so check them out as well. Uh, one of the recruiter links that I sh- that that are, that will be in the show notes. Brian Samella is uh, their exclusive Elixir rec- uh, tech recruiter. Check him out. And yeah, oh, and I'm hiring Elixir engineers, so reach out to me on LinkedIn. <laughs> uh, uh, it's uh, what we're hiring for is uh, someone who is interested in Elixir, has a little bit of experience in Elixir and wants to grow in Elixir. We're hiring like mid to mid senior level people. Yeah, a great place to learn Elixir and like learn how to build a pseudo applications in Elixir and also, you know, grow to be like a lead or wherever you want to be. We're, we're a startup. So I'll have links to all of these and my LinkedIn um, in show notes. Awesome. I'm going to throw out a couple of picks on my own. Uh, the first one is, is I did a triathlon this weekend and it all was so fun. So fun. So yeah, if you're if you're interested in uh, the special kind of torture that involves three different sports, triathlon. Anyway, it's it, it was really fun. 
few other picks to throw out there. Uh, one is is topendevs.com. So just so people are aware, I am kind of pushing this into the next phase of where I see things going. And essentially, it mostly centers around courses. So uh, if you go to topendevs.com, I should have the sign-up links and everything there. I'm going to be doing some master classes between now and the end of the year, and then I'm going to launch the first full course at the start of the year. I'm going to list out all the courses I intend to make through the next year. And then if if people are interested in authoring courses on there, you can do that as well. And I'm looking for people who are interested in either doing an ongoing series, right, where you release like two 15-minute videos every week, or uh, people who want to do like a full-length course, which is basically anywhere from I don't want to be too terribly long, but four to four to eight hours. If you want to do one hour like walkthroughs, I'm I'm open to those as well. But yeah, go to topendevs.com slash author and yeah, you, you'll be able to do that there. And then board game. I gotta do a board game pick. So this week I'm gonna pick Viscounts of the West Kingdom. I don't know if I've picked this before, but I'm starting to keep track. Oh, I picked that one. Now I'm gonna pick this other one. So uh if you've played Scythe. It's kind of like Viscounts of the West Kingdom, except it has uh, Viscounts has cards uh, that do different things as well, and the movement of your your pieces is a little bit different. But it, it's really fun. There are a lot of different ways to win, a lot of different ways to score points. It's kind of got a deck building element to it, which I mentioned with the cards, but it's also got the kind of tasks and stuff like that going on. It is a is definitely a fun game. It's a little bit involved, so I know some people are like not into complex games. This one's kind of right on the edge of about as complex as I really like. There are more complicated games that take longer to set up, play, and figure out. And I tend to, once you're into, you know, ridiculous setup times and ridiculous play times because there are so many moving pieces, yeah, you start to lose my interest. But this one's kind of right on the edge of that. So definitely more complicated than, say, your Settlers of Catan or something. But it, it's a pretty fun game. So uh, I'm going to pick that. Um, Viscounts is spelled with an S, V-I-S-C-O-U-N-T-S. And yeah, those are my picks this week. And I guess we'll just wrap it up here. And until next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.